Mouse to Mouse, Episode 3, The Plan, Again. It has occurred to me of late that I might need to slightly revise my original statement that Walt Disney created America. It's not that I'm downgrading Walt's role in the creation of the mythical land that we are currently a bit more than a month away from exploring, but rather that I'm using his own thoughts about Disneyland as an overarching metaphor for the nation itself. Walt rather famously said that Disneyland is a show, and I'm sure that we've all heard and observed theories about the way that entering the park through Main Street is akin to entering a movie theatre, with coming attractions and the smell of fresh popcorn leading us ultimately to the main feature beyond the hub and the castle. So in these terms, I think it might be slightly more accurate to say that Walt Disney produced America. Certainly in my mind, the journey for which I have lavished literally years of planning and more money than I'm entirely happy to think about is nothing if not a great cinematic epic with my family in the lead roles and a cast of millions ready to, albeit unwittingly, play their parts. The closer that this movie comes to actually going into production, and as I'm sat here writing this in mid-June, that means the cameras will roll in a little over a month and a half, the more that the magnitude of the producer's art begins to come into sharp focus. While of course the real emotional heart of the story here is the rags-to-riches tale of the boy who would be king of the most magical of realms in a land itself built largely on fantasy, there is a massive cast of supporting players whose stories will interweave across the narrative of my America. While some of these tales will relate directly back to Walt, Some of them will have a tangential connection, and others will be entirely unrelated to the man himself. All of them are important, in the sense that they come together to represent nothing less than the American dream to a boy who has looked longingly upon it from afar. It is fair to say, then, that while this story is about a journey from place to place, or mouse to mouse if you want to stick with our oh-so-clever tagline, it's just as much about the people that made those places a fascination to this particular outsider. After all, while it is true that some of the things that I hope will inspire awe in my children during this trip will be the natural wonders of a land bountifully gifted in that direction, far more of their memories will be of remarkable things created and produced by the men and women who, just as they do in all nations, have really created America. Some of these stories will be of the great men and women variety in which titans of history have performed remarkable feats to change the course of human development or human rights. America certainly has more than its fair share of such tales. Though it is certainly not my intention to downplay the global significance of these epoch-making individuals, I also don't want to mislead my former colonial cousins into thinking that these mighty events alone lead this particular Englishman to an obsession with your great nation. Indeed, if I were to sum up the reason for this voyage of discovery, setting Walt Disney aside for a moment, in two words, those words would be weird stuff. I hope that this does not set us off on the wrong foot, or lead to the mass burning of this book, particularly the Kindle version, as I would imagine that could get very messy across the United States. But America is weird. If it comes as a shock to you that people outside of your borders think this, I'm genuinely sorry to be the bearer of such news, but that's just the way it is. Now, of course I accept that from your point of view, it is entirely possible that you might think my own nation, 
in which a very old and very rich lady, wearing a diamond-encrusted hat, sits on a golden throne to give a speech about what's going to happen in a place called the House of Commons, where currently the bloke in charge of it happens to be her cousin, over the next year is also a bit on the wonky side, and I can't say that I would entirely disagree. But we're talking about you here, not me. America is weird, but don't think that I mean this as an insult. It's in this very weirdness that draws the rest of the world to you and secretly makes many of us wish that we were you. To give one small, or perhaps more accurately gigantic example, your obsession with really big stuff is a source of fascination to the rest of the world. You may think that in planning a trip from coast to coast to celebrate your nation, the instinct would be to take in all the great American art museums or the sites of historical import. And of course, those impulses are there. But overwhelmingly, what me and millions of other people like me really want to see is the world's tallest thermometer, the world's biggest rocking chair, or the world's largest ball of twine. It isn't the objects themselves that hold such wonder. If the truth be told, they're quite often not all they're cracked up to be. But the fact that, as a people, you have the imagination and sense of the absurd to, on occasion, devote entire lives to creating them. On the trip around New England that I mentioned earlier, we came across a giant blue bug called Nibbles Woodaway. Get it? In Providence, Rhode Island, that sat atop a pest control company and apparently cost $20,000 to build. The bug itself was a cool curiosity to spy from the freeway, but the idea that the owner of a business sat down one day and thought to himself, I've got 20 grand going spare. I could build the world's biggest termite. That, my friends, whether you know it yourself or not, is the heart and soul of what makes America special. And you don't just settle for giant stuff. Some of you may not even be aware of the fact that in a place called Lucas, Kansas, there is actually a travelling exhibit entitled The World's Largest Collection of the World's Smallest Versions of the World's Largest Things. A truck laden with hundreds of miniature models of the giant representations of regular-sized things that punctuate the map of America. Now, if that isn't conclusive evidence of my contention that in the absolutely most fantastic way possible, America is weird, then I might as well give up this quest and settle for a week in a caravan in Bogner. Of course, every epic road movie needs a suitably well-chosen soundtrack of iconic tunes, and luckily, like the shared use of a vaguely similar language, music is something that our two nations have traded back and forth for much of the late 20th century. If, as we have observed, Walt Disney is both the producer and the star of this particular feature, then its musical director would, rather improbably, be a man who was best known to many Americans, at least those who grew up watching TV in the 1970s, as Dr. Joe Early from the successful NBC show Emergency. What's a TV doctor got to do with anything, I hear you cry? Well, settle down and I'll be happy to fill you in. Dr. Joe Early The silver-haired charmer from the emergency room was, as I am sure all US TV aficionados can almost certainly recount, played by one Robert W. Bobby Troop, an erstwhile jazz pianist of some repute, who was born in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in 1918. Apart from being married to his glamorous co-star, Nurse Dixie McCall, who was herself played by American musical royalty in the form of sultry-voiced Julie London of Crimea River fame, Probably Bobby's biggest notable contribution to popular culture, and thus to this book, was a little song that he penned in 1946 about one of the world's most well-known roads. 
This seems like an opportune moment to recount an anecdote of the kids say the funniest things variety from my son, who once demanded from the back seat of the car that we play the Chick Hicks song, to some degree of mystification from my wife and I. It was only after a rather protracted period of probing and an impromptu rendition of the chorus that included the line, Get Chick Hicks on Route 66, that the penny dropped and Chuck Berry's version was dutifully played. Get Your Kicks on Route 66, to give it its correct and original title, apparently sprang into Troop's head whilst on a road trip from his native Pennsylvania to California, and was originally going to be a pay-on to the wonders of Highway 40, until his rather less famous first wife, Cynthia Hare, suggested the kicks and 66 rhyme. While it is true that only a fairly small proportion of our total mileage across the US will take us along the mother road, just as with the big things idea, it's as much for the spirit of what the song symbolises as its actual lyric that has caused it to loom large in my mind from the moment this road trip popped into it. In the name of thoroughness, though, It is worth noting that our planned route will take in St. Louis down to Missouri, although that is sort of cheating, of course, and should give us a view on whether Oklahoma City is oh so pretty. We'll see Amarillo and Gallup, New Mexico. We'll be staying the night in Flagstaff, Arizona. We'll try not to forget Winona and plan to stop in Kingman and we'll pass through Barstow. Unfortunately, though, we seem to be scheduled to more or less skirt around the edges of San Bernardino and we'll only get within about 350 miles of Chicago. Perhaps readers should look out for a future book about travelling around America via song lyrics, but I'm getting carried away and off topic now. I know, that isn't like me, is it? The fact that this song has one fairly direct and another more tenuous connection back to Disney is of course a nice piece of happenstance. The direct one is obviously related to my son's mishearing of the lyrics as they relate to a character in Disney Pixar's Cars although this has since led me to wonder if that might not be what Chick Hicks is named for answers on a postcard. The song features in the film's soundtrack by both the aforementioned Chuck Berry during the Lightning McQueen's makeover scene and a more contemporary version by John Mayer over the closing credits. The film itself, of course, is John Lasseter's love letter to the small towns along America's Main Street, many of which simply withered on the vine and died with the inception of the interstate. And as such, I'm very much hoping to find a little of Radiator Springs in many of the stops that we make, particularly during the Arizona and New Mexico parts of the trip. The more tenuous connection relates to Bobby Troop himself, whose grave, along with that of Julie London and their daughter Jodie, is marked with a simple plaque bearing the inscription, Your love and music will always be with us, in Forest Lawn Memorial Park. The same cemetery that, despite persistent urban myths about cryogenic chambers, more of that later, plays home to the simple gravesite of Walter Elias Disney. If getting our kicks on Route 66 is the obvious choice for the theme song for the whole project, then the rest of the soundtrack album will be an interesting mix of pop, country, rock and roll and classic Americana. There are some obvious choices that will need to be played over some of the travel montages. Elvis Presley's Viva Las Vegas as we enter Sin City. Kansas City, probably by the rather less obvious choice of the British Elvis, Billy Fury, over a scene of us taking in the building that once housed Laugh-O-Gram Studios, and the jaunty Is This the Way to Amarillo, penned by Neil Sedaka, but most famous to a British audience as the signature tune of Yorkshire crooner Tony Christie, as the family goof around among the decaying autos of the Cadillac Ranch. But the real glory will come from the songs and artists that we accumulate along the route, Take It Easy by the Eagles is a shoo-in as we pass through Winslow, Arizona, 
where Jackson Brown and Glenn Fry found themselves standing on the corner, being looked at by a girl in a slowed-down flatbed Ford, an event that the good people of Winslow have apparently recognised with a bronze statue and a Trump lawyer painting of said girl-guy-truck combination. It would hardly be right to pass through Jackson, Tennessee, without featuring at least a few bars of Johnny Cash and June Carter getting married in a fever hotter than a pepper sprout while visiting Tupelo, Mississippi is both akin to a spiritual pilgrimage to the birthplace of the king himself and a chance to segue gracefully into Van Morrison's Tupelo Honey as we watch the satiated family of Elvis fans drive serenely into the sunset. It's becoming clear that this is not only going to be a summer blockbuster, but a double platinum soundtrack album, and that's without even thinking about the short-lived but brightly blazing star of Buddy Holly as we pass through Lubbock, Texas the massively influential but ultimately doomed genius of Hank Williams or the velvet voice of Nat King Cole, who both hailed from Montgomery, Alabama. It's obvious that like picking your eight desert island discs, it will be a question of which works of art you have to leave out rather than trying to find enough to fill the time. And where, may I ask, would a story centred around the creative outpourings of Walt Disney be if its soundtrack didn't feature the melodic brilliance of the Sherman Brothers? Why the thought is positively un-American. 